gospel of the kingdom calls us to a marketplace where we trade in new commodities, where we trade in spiritual riches that have been given to us by the grace of God in Christ. We're called to the ministry of the gospel, the life-giving, life-changing message of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. It is the message empowered by the Holy Spirit that gives life to dead, depraved sinners. He calls us to life in Christ through the message of this kingdom as it's proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're called into fellowship with the living God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, says that we've been called out of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, and we enjoy rich fellowship with the triune God in this kingdom. We're called to a new set of priorities, as our text will lay before us this evening. We're called to seek the kingdom of God. We're called to seek the righteousness of God. Our affections, as Paul said in Colossians 3, are to be set upon things that are above, not on things on the earth, because our citizenship is now in heaven and not just in earthly citizenship. All of this rich truth is applied to us in the message, in the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're looking at the priorities of this glorious kingdom and of this great king in the parables of Christ. We began several weeks ago in the, uh, the parable of the soil or the parable of the sower. In Luke chapter 8, we realize that the gospel is proclaimed and it is broadcast like seed in a, a vast field. And that seed brings forth life in differing responses and in different varieties of responses to the message of the gospel. A few weeks ago, we considered the mercy of the kingdom and realized that we've been called to live out the implication of mercy in our lives through the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And then last week, we took a look at prayer and the subject of prayer and the priority of prayer, kingdom-honoring prayer, God-honoring prayers. We looked in Luke chapter 11. We considered both the instruction of Christ and what has been called the disciples' prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so on. And then we spent a lot of time last week, if you weren't here, in Luke chapter 11, looking at the incentives for prayer. It's as if Jesus said, this is the way you're to pray. We begin with a focus that is Godward, that is heavenward. We begin with a focus that is kingdom enlarging and kingdom expanding. And we bring our needs before the King of kings and the Lord of lords in prayer. Believe that He's going to give us those resources in a way that will bring honor and glory to Him. And those incentives for prayer are rooted not in ourselves, but they're rooted in the faithful character of God, who's promised to honor Himself, who's promised to be true to Himself. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is uh, found in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. It's just a reminder that God is not a man that He should lie, or the Son of Man that He should repent. There's a, a great... This is completely off the subject, almost completely off the subject, but there's a great scene, I think, of prayer of intercession in the Old Testament as Solomon is dedicating the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And he lifts his hands toward the God of heaven and he begins to pour out his heart and ask God to visit this temple, this place with His glory. And Solomon says this, There has not failed one word of His promise. It is the character of God that leads us to persevere in prayer. And I said last week that bold praying leads to bold action because God has promised that those who ask will receive 
and those who seek will find, and those who knock to them the door will be opened. And if earthly, evil fathers are able to give good gifts to their children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? When we come to Luke chapter 12, we come to the parable of what is called the rich farmer. He's called in this text this evening a fool, and we'll see in just a moment why he is given that designation in the, in the parable. But what I'd like to do is ask you to look with me this evening in Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to start in verse 13, and we're going to go down through verse 31, and we're going to look at the economics of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom. The value of the kingdom of God is not measured in dollars and cents. It's not measured in earthly possessions. Because we've come into this kingdom and our hearts have been changed. And we've been renewed in the image and likeness of Christ. We've been called to a new agenda, a new set of priorities and new values. The economics of the kingdom. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13 and reading through verse 21. Then the Bible says, One from the crowd said to him, said to Christ, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be? Who will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Alan Greenspan recently testified before Congress, and he said that infectious greed is driving corporate scandal in America. Indeed, the cell doors are rattling across corporate America as Dennis Kozlowski and Mark Schwartz and uh, John Riggis of Adelphia fame are facing stiff fines and penalties, even jail terms. Their crime, in one word, greed. In one word, it is greed. It has driven the desire and is behind the desire and the quest to obtain more and more and more. Augustine defined greed as simply that, the desire for more than is enough. Uh, probably it's illustrated by America's first billionaire. Anybody know who that is? He's the founder and developer of Standard Oil, John D. Rockefeller. One time, Mr. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? And his quick response was, one more dollar. One more dollar. That captures in somewhat of an anecdotal form the whole concept of covetousness, the whole concept of greed. And yet greed like lust is never satisfied by more. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5 verses 10 and 11 observe this, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. He says this also is vanity. That is, this also is vexation of the Spirit. So this text in its 
admonition and in its parabolic application is timeless in its insights into the fallen human condition and also timeless in its urging us to a different set of values and economies as citizens of the kingdom of God. Would you notice with me, first of all, and very quickly this evening, that this text begins with an urgent admonition. If you'll notice the, the context here in verse 1, there is um, a huge multitude. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and it uses the word innumerable. You know how many that is? It's too many to count. There was a huge crowd there. But yet the text says that Jesus began to address His disciples. And in verses 1 all the way down through verse 12, Jesus is addressing the disciples and He's warning them against the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He encourages His followers to be fearless in the face of opposition to the gospel because He says there's only one that you need to fear and that is God Himself because God has power to cast both soul and body into hell. And this encouragement to stand firm in the face of opposition to the gospel and to the advance of the kingdom, Jesus says that God is the one who has all power. It's God who holds us firmly and securely in the palm of His hand. It's God whose providence surrounds us and sustains us and keeps us moment by moment. You remember the, uh, the uh, singer Ethel Waters? Billy Graham Crusades. Anybody remember Ethel Waters? You remember the song she used to sing? His eye is on the sparrow, and I know his eye is upon me, or his, his eye is watching over me. Jesus is encouraging the disciples. Yes, you're going to face opposition, but God's power is there to sustain you. You will never run beyond the reach of God's providence. And then he says in the midst of opposition, down in verse 12 in our text, which we didn't read, that in the face of this opposition... You will be filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit to speak the very words of God to your opponents. Well, in the middle of these gospel exhortations to the followers of Christ, in the midst of all this encouragement and exhortation, suddenly in verse 13, there is a request blurted out from the crowd. And this man has this request. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I want you to get the import of what's being said here. Standing in the midst of this crowd, standing in the midst of the disciples as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, the fountain of life. And His words are life-giving. And this guy in the crowd blurts out this request about money, about his inheritance and about this squabble that he's involved in with his brother the man's consuming passion, the man's consuming interest in the midst of such spiritual riches is focused on earthly temporal things. He's focused upon his inheritance. One commentator suggested that the dispute is really symptomatic of an underlying spiritual problem. The real problem is that the man thinks the problem is the inheritance, but it's not the problem. The real problem is the man's heart. That's why perhaps the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, that it's out of the heart that flow the issues of life. It's out of the heart that come the real significant issues of life. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, and they're worried about how they wash hands or don't wash hands. And folks, the point is not about hygiene. 
It's not about cleanliness being next to godliness. It's about defilement from sinners in the marketplace. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees. In Matthew 15, He says, It's out of the heart that a person is defiled. Beneath this question over settling a dispute regarding an inheritance is a heart that has set itself upon greed. It's a greedy heart. It's a covetous heart. And Jesus uses the request to warn His followers then and now in verse 13 to take heed, or pardon me, verse 15, to take heed, that is, beware of covetousness. Uh, the, the Greek text uses a word here, pleonexia, which means an overreaching desire, an overreaching selfishness that is not satisfied by obtaining more. It's uh, the idea of never having enough, of never being satisfied with what God has given, of not being satisfied with God's providence and God's uh, provision in their lives. If you have an NIV Bible, it translates the word all kinds of greed. If you have an NIV Bible, hoist your hand up, would you? Just a minute so I can get an idea. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Kathy, I think it says all kinds of greed. Because the word really has a plural implication. Greed in all kinds of forms, in all shapes, all sizes, and all colors. And Jesus issues this urgent admonition to be on guard against this grasping kind of selfishness. And why would that be? Why would he be concerned about covetousness, about greed, all kinds of greed? Well, I would suggest to you that principally because it's a breach of the Tenth Commandment about covetousness. And in that Tenth Commandment, we're not to covet. And then the text in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, lists several things that we're not to covet. You could just summarize those in saying, Material success and status and power and prestige and comfort and security. Because our hearts are to long for the living God who gives good gifts and who gives us richly all things to enjoy. But such is the state of our hearts and such is the state of sin that we will very easily substitute gifts for the giver and we will look to gifts as our means of comfort, security, Strength and support. It's right for Jesus to warn us in regards to covetousness. Covetousness was identified by the medieval church as one of seven deadly sins. They were considered deadly because they blunted spiritual progress. They diminished spiritual hunger and thirst. They distorted values. They, they diminished our sense of need for Christ and the gospel. Covetousness decries our true need. It denies our true need, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It drives dishonorable thoughts and motives and actions. That's perhaps why Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And then you know this verse, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And the thing about covetousness, it is so, so insidious, so subtle, that it will cloak itself in the virtue of industry. 
and the desire, the drive to provide. It is so subtle that it will cloak itself as a virtue, as a work ethic. And yet, in fact, it's a drive and a desire for more and more. Beloved of God, the pages of Scripture are little, literally littered, marked by the lives of men and women whose lives made ruin and shipwreck because they did not take heed to their hearts. Adam and Eve desired to be like God. Cain desired acceptance of his sacrifice. Lot, as Dr. Young preached some weeks ago, now looked at the well-watered plains of Sodom and desired the well-watered plains. And it nearly ruined his heart and his soul and his family. Achan in Joshua 7 desired a wedge of gold, and on and on I could go. When Jesus told the parable of the, of the sower and the soils, turn, hold your place in, in uh, Luke 12, but turn back to Luke chapter 8 for just a moment. When Jesus told the parable of the sower, or some commentators will refer to it as the soils, when Jesus described and told this story, He was indicating prophetically in a timeless, unerring way. When the gospel is proclaimed, there will be various responses to the message of the gospel. This is a a rehearsal of what I've said before. But in that uh, parable of the sower or the soils in Luke 8.13, he says the seed is the word of God. And he said the seed of the word of God is broadcast, it's proclaimed. And it falls on different kinds of soils. For example, it falls on some soil that is hard and compacted and is impervious to the message of the gospel. There is no interest, no affection, no desire for the things that the gospel promises and the things that gospel calls us to. Jesus says there are some who respond to the gospel and they're like seed that falls among very shallow soil. There is an emotional response. There's a seeming initial interest in the things of God and all that the gospel calls us to and promises. But when the tests of life come, they reveal the falsity of the faith professed. And then Jesus says there's a third kind. There's a third kind of response to the gospel. And um, he describes that kind of uh, response as seed that falls among thorns. And then he defines what those thorns are in this soil. Anybody, skip down about, I think it's about verse 14 or 15. Anybody want to read that verse, volunteer? Luke 8, I think it's verse 14 or 15. Preferably out loud. <laughs> Okay, the cares, the riches, and the pleasures choke out the seed of the gospel. Matthew chapter 13 tells the same parable and interprets the same parable, but there it appends this, the deceitfulness of riches choke out the seed so that no fruit is brought to maturity. I would suggest to you this evening, turn back to Luke chapter 12, I'd suggest to you this evening that in this petitioner from the crowd, from the multitude, You and I see a living embodiment of exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is proclaiming the message of the kingdom. He's proclaiming the message of the gospel. He's promising encouragement and sustenance 
to his disciples. And in the midst of these great gospel instructions comes this guy from the crowd who in the midst of the words of eternal life says, Hey, would you tell my brother to give me the money that's due me? It's an illustration of exactly what Jesus is talking about. How standing on the very brink of eternity and hearing the Savior speak promises of life and grace, this man's real interest, this man's real heart absorption is not in the kingdom of God. It's an earthly inheritance. The motive behind the question Jesus, I think, interprets in the admonition in verse 15 is covetousness. Oh, think about this, guys. The fountain of living water is standing in the midst of ruined, parched people. And there's a man there who's more concerned about carving out a vessel that will hold no water than he is drinking from the fountain that will never run dry. One of Jeremiah's scathing denunciations of the people of God in the Old Testament is found in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've carved out cisterns or vessels or wells that will hold no water. This man illustrates in a very real historical fashion the very thing that Jesus is warning against. And so here's the admonition. Watch your heart. Take care. Take heed to your heart because we can move very easily into substituting gifts for the giver and leaning upon the gifts instead of trusting in and leaning upon the giver. Beware of covetousness. And then he applies this admonition through what I think is a timeless application in the vehicle of a parable of the rich farmer in verses 16 through 20. Let me say, the Bible doesn't condemn money. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth. Abraham was a very wealthy man. Job was a very wealthy man. Solomon was a very wealthy man. Isaac and Jacob were very wealthy people. The first disciples that Jesus called were businessmen. They were involved in a fishing enterprise. They had their own boats. They had their own nets. He was laid in the tomb of a disciple by the name of Joseph of Arimathea who is a man of substance and means. The Bible does not come right out of the chute and condemn money or wealth. What the Bible does condemn is trusting in money and trusting in wealth as opposed to the living God who gives those things to be used as a stewardship and as a sacred trust. The farmer's attitude toward and use of the riches betrays an underlying covetousness that would lead to his Eternal spiritual room. Proverbs says the plowing of the wicked is sin. I thought about that one time. That seems odd, doesn't it? The plowing of the wicked is sin. And the more I thought about that, I thought, well, that makes perfect sense in the light of Scripture. Because the wicked who plows the soil believes that it's up to him to grow and produce the harvest. He doesn't realize that it's the Lord of all glory who gives the sunshine and the rain and the seed and the soil. He thinks he's the cause of his fruitfulness. And so it is with this rich farmer. 
You can tell by the dialogue he has within himself that he's trusting in himself. He's leaning and looking to himself. In many ways, the warning of Deuteronomy chapter 8 still applies to God's people today, and that is we need to take heed lest we forget it's God who gives the power to get wealth. In fact, would you turn over there real quick, Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm in Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, about one time a year. And it may have been, uh, have been a while since you've read this, but I want you to see this real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 8 still applies, I think, in so many ways to us. Um, God's people are about to go into the, the promised land. They're about to inherit all that God has promised to His people in His covenant blessings, His covenant stipulations. And uh, He gives this warning just as they are on the brink of entering the land that He had promised. And uh, notice that he, um, well, just for the sake of time, start at verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. Um, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. In verse 10, when you've eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Verse 12, Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver, your gold are multiplied. In verse 13, When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Verse 15, Who led you through this terrible wilderness. Verse 16, Who fed you in the wilderness with manna. Verse 17, then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. That's the whole point. That is the whole point. That whatever we have received has come as a gift of God, a gift of His grace. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, He's given us a sacred responsibility, a stewardship, to manage those resources wisely to the praise of the glory of His grace. And if we have anything at all, it's a means of giving honor and praise to God because we recognize it's not we who have done it, but it's the sheer bounty and goodness of God that has so abundantly been poured out upon us. Turn back to Luke chapter 12. In the midst of this admonition to this man about and to the disciples about being careful about covetousness, the whole point is that our hearts are so prone to move away from trust in God to dependence upon the riches. Perhaps uh, that's why Jesus a little bit later in uh, Luke chapter 18 would say it's really hard for those who are rich in this world's goods to enter the kingdom of God. He says, in fact, it's easier to go through the, the, uh, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And some people say, well, the, the eye of that needle is like the wall in Jerusalem and the camel would go down and have to take everything off of him and so on. Luke was a physician. And you know what? In the Greek text, the word for needle is there. It's the surgeon's needle through which the thread would pass when they would sew someone. What Jesus is saying, it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it is impossible for the wealthy who trust in their riches to enter the kingdom of God. Because it could be that their riches have numbed them, have anesthetized them to their real spiritual needs, their need of forgiveness, 
their need of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, of utterly denying themselves and of taking up the cross and following the Lord Jesus Christ. The application comes in this farmer through this parable concerning this farmer who is self-centered and preoccupied with meeting his needs independently of God. In this parable, there are no fewer than 12 references beginning with I or my. He is preoccupied with himself. And sin always enthrones self as the object of concern and worship. Ravi Zacharias, you ever heard of Ravi Zacharias? The apologist, brilliant apologist. He said once that the theme song of hell is I did it my way. And as this farmer surveys his vast holdings, his barns bursting with plenty, he is congratulating himself on his business prowess. He is security-centered. In verse 19, I have plenty of goods stored up. But he failed to look for security in God. We all crave security. That's why I have insurance. I have health insurance, life insurance, automobile insurance. You can't afford to have it, and you sure can't afford not to have it. We have Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. We have an enormous national defense spending budget because we all crave security. But our security rests in God. That's the point of what Jesus is going to go on to say in the text that follows in verse 22 and 31. What He's saying to His disciples is that your real security in life doesn't lie in yourself. It lies in the Father. And it's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever heard of this catechism. I was not reared in a church, and perhaps you weren't either, that reared in a church that used catechisms. That sounds... I always thought catechism was something painful. You know, you catechized, ouch, I bet that hurt. But catechism is a question and answer format where you learn Bible truths. And there's this old catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. Anybody ever heard of that? The Heidelberg Catechism. The first question and answer is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? Well, the catechism summarizing the Scripture says, my only comfort in life and death is that I belong to God in both soul and body. And that not a hair of my head falls to the ground apart from His will. We all crave security. But it's not found in building bigger barns. It's not found in plenty. It's not found in anything earthly. It's found in a relationship with God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is security-centered as opposed to being God-centered. And yet Jesus later in this text is going to say that God cares for the ravens. Will He not care for you? He clothed the lilies of the valley with more glory than Solomon at the apex of his power was adorned with. Will he not take care of you? And the answer most surely is yes, he will. Little wonder then that in verse 20, God calls this rich farmer a fool. He is called a fool and the response is heavy. It is freighted with irony, highlighting the arrogance of a man who thought he was in control of his life. Some months ago now, obviously prior to moving here, um, I was in Fort Myers and I pulled behind a car in traffic. It was a little convertible sports car. 
And I couldn't help but notice the bumper sticker. The bumper sticker said this. Perhaps you've seen it. He who dies with the most toys wins. Oh, the folly of that logic. Oh, the folly of a logic that says life is defined by dollars and cents. Oh, the eternal poverty of the person who really embraces that lifestyle and leads that kind of lifestyle. God calls this man a fool. And fool in Scripture is not a matter of ignorance. It's not because the man was not astute in his dealings. He was very astute. He was a rich farmer. No, the Bible says foolishness is not a matter of knowledge or ignorance, but it's a matter of heart. It's the spiritual depravity of the heart. It's the heart of the person in Psalm 14 who says there is no God. This man never prepared for eternity because money, wealth, and ease was the focus of his life. The word fool here in the Greek text doesn't mean a person that's ignorant or senseless. It's a person that's preoccupied with things as opposed to being preoccupied with the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God as embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the fool who lives without reference to the will of God, preferring life on his terms. But his world, hear this well, his world and his life is a web of self-deceit that will be exposed in the piercing light of eternity when he steps from this life into the presence of the just judge of all the earth. Dr. Young on Sunday alluded to Carl Sagan as he was talking about apologetics on the beach and and philosophic naturalism and pluralism and all the other isms. And he alluded to the fact that Carl Sagan used to say, Cosmos is all that is, was, and ever will be. I thought about that. Carl Sagan died, I believe, of cancer some years ago. And I thought about that that oft-repeated mantra suddenly became revelation as he stepped from this life into the life to come and as he will one day be ushered into the court of final appeal, of which there is no final appeal, the court of heaven in Revelation chapter 20. How awful it must be to step from a God-denying, self-serving, self-centered life into eternity, then to know in a moment's instance, in a flash of illumination, that it's everlastingly too late to bend the knee to Christ and to confess His redeeming Lordship over one's life. How awful for Carl Sagan and how different he would know now. When Jesus addresses this farmer in the parable as a fool, it's not a reference to comedic buffoonery, but it is a reference to an eternally lethal disregard for heaven and the glories to come. And, oh, brethren, how easily my heart is moved into a preoccupation to the demerit of my soul and my relationship with Christ with things in this life. The rich farmer's body was left lifeless by the bulging barns of plenty, but his soul was called unprepared into eternity. The departure of his soul and the moldering ruins of his body really are the punchline in the parable. It shows the folly of too close attachment to things earthly, temporal, and transitory. Let me quickly 
summarize a couple of things from this parable, if I may, and we'll be on our way. The punchline is delivered by Christ at the end of the parable in verse 21. He says, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Being rich toward God is the opposite of the materialism of the rich fool. Money and materialism filled his horizon. Christ and eternity are to fill ours. The resources that God entrusts to us are not the basis for the accumulation of more and more and more. It's the basis of kingdom advancement and kingdom investment and of kingdom enterprise. The economies, the values of the kingdom fly in the face of what Alan Greenspan said before Congress. An infectious greed drives corporate America. We're not driven by an infectious greed. We're driven to pursue a kingdom of which there is no end. We're driven out of love and loyalty and allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we're called to be rich toward God. We're called to be rich on the account of God. We're called to be rich in faith, to be rich in good works and righteousness and gospel fruit. Because in verse 33 of Luke chapter 12, we're given a treasure in heaven that does not grow old, that does not fail. A thief will not approach this treasure and a moth will not corrupt or destroy. Because ultimately, folks, our treasure is our saving interest in Christ. And so it's an urgent admonition and a timeless application Beware of covetousness. Guard your heart. And the admonition and the application call for repeated, serious, sincere self-examination. In the light of this parable, it calls for piercing questions for whom or what are we living? Where will we spend eternity? Are our thoughts completely taken up with this life only? Do we take more pains for gaining heaven than for gaining earth? And are we so overloaded with the things of this life that we have no abiding interest, time, or energy for the kingdom of God and the King who reigns as Lord over that kingdom? Take heed. Take heed. May we all take heed to the values and the economies of the kingdom of our Lord. Father, we are grateful beyond words, and I pray beyond measure that out of sovereign grace you've brought us to a saving knowledge of Christ. And may you so work your values into our hearts that we embrace them and embody them before a world staggered and gone amok by a consumptive greed that denies life beyond this life. Father, may we invest ourselves in that one kingdom that will never end in service to the one King whose throne will ever endure. And we ask this in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.